Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're starting a new series this week. It's on the book of Ruth, and it's going to be really fun. I wasn't prepared for how fun it was going to be. So, I mean, um, we're going to start. Ruth is it, where it's placed in Scripture. It's kind of like a lily among the thorns. Um, it, it, immediately preceding it is the book of Judges. And actually, the very first line of Ruth, Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There's lots of these sentences, in the, particularly in the beginning of Ruth, that are just loaded sentences. In the times where the judges ruled, that would bring you back. I want us to read this as an ancient Jewish person would read it. And if you, if you heard that phrase, when the judges ruled, that would take you back to a very dark time in Israel, Israelite history. You know, the book of Judges comes right before it. And a lot of times we think of the book of Judges and we think, oh, it's a fun book because they got Samson and Gideon and Deborah and there's all these wonderful characters in it, but what is really happening in the book of Judges is this downward spiral. And what happens, it happens in a lot of our lives, I think, a lot of times. It, it, it's, okay, we're going to, um, the Lord's going to uh, rescue us, but then we're going to get away from him. We're going to turn our backs on him, and we're going to start to worship other gods. We're going down and down, and then finally, that, those people that we're talking to are going to start oppressing us, Okay. And so that eventually we're going to cry out to God because we can't take it anymore. God, deliver us. And God raises up a deliverer. We call them judges in that book. And then he'll deliver his people. And they're happy for a couple of years. And they start doing it again. And it gets lower and lower. And that book ends with just like one of the most horrific stories you've ever heard. And an interesting thing happens in that book as well. It starts off all kinds of personal names are being used. Everyone's being named by their name. And throughout the book, as it goes lower and lower, these names start to disappear. And at the end of the book, they're not using anyone's name anymore. And it's just this people who have just really gone really in a bad, bad place. And the very last line in Judges 21-25, it says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's where it was left. So when you read the book of Judges, you're going to feel like you need a shower afterwards. Because you just feel dirty. It gets so bad, and the last story in there is just so awful. You need a shower. But the beauty is Ruth comes, and Ruth is the shower to that story, to that feeling. All of a sudden, everyone's names are being used, and there's this beautiful story. And if you, if you have eyes to see it, it's the Lord saying, look, I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to come and redeem you in a way that you're never going to expect. And I'm going to use a Gentile to even do that. It's this whole book, is, it breaks all of the rules that you've read about in the Old Testament. All the things you'll read and you're like, wait, that doesn't work. You can't marry her because that's against the law. A lot of that stuff happens in the book of Ruth. And it's God just showing, I can do it however I want to. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, so let's continue with the story. Uh, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, continued, or together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This is another loaded sentence right off the bat. Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's instant irony right here. People, Israelite people who the Lord has chosen are leaving the house of bread in Judah, the, the promised land, to go to a place called Moab. And I'm going to explain why Moab is so bad. <laughs> but let's continue with this right from the beginning. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now remember, you're an ancient Jew reading this. They married Moabite women is a bad sentence to you. Keep that in mind. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, if you're reading this as an ancient Jewish person, they left the promised land, the house of bread, to go to Moab. They married Moabite women, which is a no-no. You're going to think, well, of course they died. That's, that's what you get. Um, that's the mindset that you're supposed to have. And you're supposed to see Ruth and uh, Orpah, if you're reading this as an ancient Jew, as probably they're going to be the antagonists of this story. They're going to be the villains. But again, it's unexpected the way the Lord does it in this book. Okay, so let's talk about Moab. Why is Moab a big deal? That's the face that you would get as an ancient Jew when you hear the word Moab. Where does that come from? Let's, how did they start at the beginning? Who is the person of Moab? You remember back in, in Genesis, um, the Sodom and Gomorrah saga, Lot and his wife and his family were there, and the Lord rescued them out of there. Um, and he, you know, remember, he told Lot, Lot's wife not to turn around, and when she did, she turned into a pillar of salt. So there's Lot and his two daughters that have escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're up in the hills, and the daughters are looking around, and they're not seeing any men, and they said, hey, let's get our dad drunk and sleep with him, and that way we can have children. So they did that, and the two kids are named Ammon and Moab. So the first thing you're going to think is an ancient Jew, Moab is the child of incest. And it actually comes from a Hebrew word that kind of means from the father, just so you don't forget where Moab comes from, okay? And that's strike one against these people. And I'll just let the Bible speak for itself for strike two and three. Um, Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 8. If you want to study the book of Ruth, Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25 are just a great legend, a key. There's, it, almost everything in there is explained in these three chapters that kind of explains why things are happening the way they are. Um, but in 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. That's extreme. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. Remember when they came out of Egypt, they said, okay, can we pass through your land? They said, no. And on top of that, that's strike two. Strike three is they hired Balaam, son of Beor, um, from Pethor Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. They hired some pagan um, prophet to curse Israel. That's strike three there. So however the, however, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, if you remember that story, and he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. And then it goes on to explain Edomites are okay. They can come in eventually. You can hang out with them. Egyptians are okay. You can hang out with them eventually after three generations. But Moabites in particular, they're out. Don't have anything to do with a Moabite. So it's not just like xenophobia in general. It's know them. They're worse than everybody else. So keep that in mind as we read the story. It's a lot of the background to, to um, it intensifies this story in a great way. So when Jewish people think of Moab, here's some things that come to them. Incest first, hostility, opposed to hospitality, which was very important. They were the enemy. Um, and a couple things I left out, they worshiped a god called Chemosh, who sometimes demanded uh, child sacrifices. So that's another thing that pops up. And the last thing that pops up is orgies. Um, they had a lot of fertility right things going on, so that was part of the reputation as well. So you're thinking all of these things as an ancient Jew reading this story when you hear the word Moab. 
That's interesting. So just for symbolism's purposes, Moab equals, usually equals sin. Okay? So, back to the story. Uh, they're there for 10 years. Naomi's there. She's got two daughters-in-laws, but no grandchildren and no sons. No men in their life. She hears a rumor that, hey, things are growing again in Israel. We might be able to go back there and get something to eat. I've got nothing here. I'm in Moab. I'm in a strange land. We don't even know if she, if she was part of the decision to go there in the first place. But she's going to go back. And she, so she says, hey, uh, Orpah and Ruth, I'm taking off. I'm going back home. Um, and they're saying, okay, we'll go with you. And so she says, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, I appreciate that sentiment. But you, got, you guys are young enough to find a new family, to have sons, to have husbands. People don't like Moabites where I'm from. You're not going to probably find a husband, so don't come with me. Your chances are much better here. And so Orpah thinks, you have a pretty good point, so I'm going to stay here. I have family. I know people. Um, I'm not hated. Um, it's always a positive when you're not hated in a land. Um, but uh, Ruth says, no, I am sticking with you. I don't, and we don't know the reason for this. Um, we assume Naomi's a wonderful, wonderful person, and Ruth's a wonderful, hard-headed woman as well. But her response is um, in verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I am with you forever. Um, I'm going to try to take care of you. Um, so they decide to go. Um, I'll skip over all the danger of two widows going all the way to Bethlehem in the time of the judges where people did what they thought was right in their own eyes. But just say it was a dangerous move and the first very bold move that happens in this story. So we're into chapter 2. I'm giving an overview. I'm going over it real fast. And um, Susie and Gary will glean what was left on the sheaths at the end. Um, but they need to eat. So Ruth knows about this custom, um, for, through Naomi, I'm sure, about how they provided for the foreigners and the widows and the orphans in Israel. In Deuteronomy 24, like I said, it's all packed into these uh, three, three chapters in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And he goes on to say the same in olive groves, the same with uh, vineyards, with the grapes. Go over it once, but don't just pick it clean. This is a provision for the foreigners in your land and through, for the um, widows and for the orphans. And if you're looking for ways to think biblically about immigration issues and all that kind of stuff, Ruth's a pretty good place to do that in Deuteronomy. They're provided for it with dignity. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that happens. So Ruth goes out to glean in one of these fields that she hears about. And so she happens upon uh, the field of, of, of Boaz. And this is one of these wonderful happens upon that we see in our life sometimes 10 years down the road where we see the hand of God was in our life and we didn't know it. You know, how many of us would be very happy right now if we got what we were really wanting when we were 19? Right? We're knuckleheads, you know, we want these weird things, and then uh, we look back and we're like, oh, thank the Lord, I didn't get what I really wanted at that point. Um, and so that's one of these things that happens. Uh, she ends up in the land of, uh, in, in Boaz's field, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing for her, and we'll see why. So what does Boaz look like? He probably looked like this. 
if you're new here, this is my son. Um, his name's Bo, and it actually is short for Boaz. Um, but he probably did have a beard, at least, and uh, looked a little like that. So Ruth ends up in Boaz's field, um, and Boaz notices her. Gleaning in that day, again, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to do, and her ending up in Boaz's field is so providential because, again, remember, this is in the time where the judges were in charge. This is a time where people did what was right in their own eyes. So the worker's in a field, and in comes a woman. It's a dangerous situation, particularly if that woman is looked upon as almost subhuman, as she most likely would have been being a Moabitess. So the, the chances for sexual assault, other kinds of abuse, were just very, very high for her to even be there. So her ending up in Boaz's field was the Lord's protection for her. So Boaz comes by, and he takes notice of this woman and asks, who is this woman? And he was told that, uh, uh, you know, who she was. And so he approaches her and says, hey, my daughter, um, don't go to anybody else's field. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, I, I don't know how you ended up gleaning in, in, in this time being a Moabitess, but don't go anywhere else. You stay here. You stay with my servant women, and you'll be protected um, and so stick around here. You're allowed to use the water. You, you can just use everything that the servants use here. Actually, why don't you come have lunch with me? And he actually gives her some of his own parched grain. And then he goes behind her back and starts talking to his own workers and saying, hey, when that girl starts following you, drop some extra for her. He wants to provide for her because he knows he's ta- she's taking care of her, um, her mother-in-law as well, and he's heard of that loyalty. So he's like, go ahead and drop extra. So I think Ruth was probably the most successful gleaner in Israel, um, unbeknownst to her why, but he took a liking to her. And you wonder, man, what a great guy this Boaz is, and, and he is. Um, but you wonder how he could see a, a Moabite, um, not as just an awful person. But you, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you realize that his mother was Rahab, the woman in, in Jericho. Um, she's a Gentile as well, a Canaanite. So that's in his, either his, um, his, the genealogy says his mother, but that means, could mean her, his great-grandmother or something like that. We don't know. So uh, Ruth comes home with this big old armful of barley. Um, Naomi's very happy to see this, and she's taking note. So that brings us into chapter 3. Um, we don't know how long this was going on, but one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provi- well provided for. Now Boaz with whom, whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Okay, again, as an ancient Jew, you would know, and back to Deuteronomy, it, this Levitical marriage custom. Okay, if I'm married to Liz, I'll, I'll read it to you first. Um, Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. So I'm married to Liz. Uh, If I have a brother, and we don't have children, or a a son at least, and I die, it's his responsibility to take Liz on into his family, give her a son, raise that son with her. He may have his own wife and kids as well. And at the end, um, and he will inherit the land that I owned. It's a way to pass land on. Okay, that was the custom of the time. You would know that being a Jew reading this story. And so by the time of Ruth, this is expanded out not just from your brother, but the closest relative would have the first right of refusal for that land with the obligations. Does that make sense? And that if, if the brother says no, 
then uh, the woman will have an opportunity to say, hey, meet me at the gate in front of all the elders, and then she can spit in his face and take his sandal. Um, and he'll always be known as the guy who's been unsandaled. This shame was on him. But by this time, I mean, when you go out to uh, further relatives, I don't think the shame was quite as, as big. And so this person was called the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, this person that had the first right of refusal for redeeming someone's life. So the criteria was you must be a kinsman. It starts with the closest relative, and if he refuses, it goes on down. Two, he must be able to perform the duties. He must be wealthy enough to provide for not only his own family, but this new person coming in um, and whatever family she has. He also must be able to produce a child with her. Uh, three, he must be willing to perform the duties. This isn't, he doesn't have to do it. He can refuse. He can say, no, I, I can't really do that. Um, that's well within his rights. And four, he assumes all of the obligations of the redeemed. So if this woman is heavily in debt and I decide to be her goel, I assume all of her debt. Anything she's wrapped up in, I get all of that. If she's got 12 daughters, then I take all of them as well. Um, everything that's her obligation becomes my obligation. You can see the writing on the wall of the, the type of Jesus here. Um, so the threshing floor. We're here in verse 3. This is such a dramatic story. and I, it's, it's hard for us, I think, in our culture to understand what a bold move is made here on this threshing floor by, by uh, Ruth. So Naomi says, let me first expi- uh, explain what the threshing threshing floor would be. So we've been in harvest for a season, and this is the barley harvest, so this would be the first harvest of the year. Um, when, we, when the harvest is in, then you need to separate it. You need to winnow it, and, then the, and so you go to this place called the threshing floor. Usually in the village, it would have like a, a saddleback where the breeze would blow through, so you could throw stuff in the air, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. So you do that, and what would usually happen is like all the village farms would all come together and use the same threshing floor. And so it would be this, it, was, it would turn into a kind of a party because you do it well into the evening. And so usually what would happen is the landowners would bring wine and food. It would turn into this barbecue full of uh, all-man party um, going into the evening with alcohol in the time where the judges ruled. So just keep that in your mind. Um, and Naomi says, hey, you know that all-man party with alcohol when the time of the judges ruled? <laughs> You should take a bath, put perfume on, and dress up nice and go there um, as a Moabite. Um, it, was, it was a scary time. <laughs> it was a really, really dangerous thing to do. So I think it, it's important for us to realize the bold move that is made, which isn't even as bold as what she does next. She says, watch where Boaz, you just hide in the bushes for a while, and you watch where Boaz goes to fall asleep. And when he's asleep, I want you to go, pull his blanket up and go under it. Put yourself at the place where a servant would be, okay? So he's going to wake up and find you there. Now, modern scholars like to uh, insert a sexual advance there. Um, you'll find a lot of books that will say, you know, a lot of this stuff about how she's actually asserting herself sexually. I, the, I don't think the language really, or the characters of the, of the, here in the story, actually support that very strongly. But neither here nor there. Regardless, what she does is super, super bold, probably even bolder than that. So when she does this, here's what's on the line. Everything to her, her reputation, her livelihood. If this doesn't work out, first of all, the danger of being assaulted in that is just so high. It's like 90%. 
uh, if someone sees her or finds her there in that, in that time. So that's, that's scary, the dangerous part, number one. But two, putting herself under his blanket at his, at, as the place of a servant could really, really backfire. Um, she's got a good thing going on. She's the most successful gleaner in Israel, most likely, because these guys are dropping all, the, all this wheat for her and, and barley. This is working. She's bringing home enough for Naomi and her, maybe to even save up into when it's not harvest time. So this is going pretty well. They have a roof over their heads. Um, she has a friend in Naomi, and then now Boaz is taking a liking to her. So this is a boat you might not want to rock, but there's something inside of her that needs more. Uh, there's something that is driving her towards, I need something more permanent, something more intimate. And so she's willing to do this. So when Boaz wakes up, it's dark, and he says, who is this? She says, it's your servant, Ruth. And he understands in this interaction, she's asking, will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you redeem me? Will you be my Goel? He understands this. And so he's pleased with this. And he says, oh, this is a wonderful thing. There's so many good-looking young men around that you, you haven't gone to them, but you've come to me. So he's excited about this. But there is another guy that um, has more right to you. And so Susie will take care of this in, in week four. But in long story short, the next day, he says, let's call this other guy Joe, Joe and Bo. And so Bo calls Joe and says, hey, Joe, meet me at the, the city gates in front of the elders because I want to I propose something to you. And he says, Joe, do you want this land? Sure, I want this land. Oh, by the way, it comes with a Moabite wife <laughs> that you'll have to give a kid and raise and then give that land back to that child. And so he says, ah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm good. Um, and so Boaz says, okay, I'm going to take this. And so as a result of that, he gives him the sandal. Remember the sandal? So he gets the sandal off of him as a sign of that, that covenant. And he takes Ruth into his house. They become one. They have a child named Obed. That child has a child named Jesse. And that child has a child named David. And yeah, it's that David, the King David. Fourteen generations later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem as a result of this. And it, was, it breaks so many rules because up, even up till 10 generations, the, the child of a, of a Moabite and an Israelite shouldn't be allowed in the assembly, yet King David became two generations later. This book breaks all of these rules. So, as you, I don't know if you've seen it, but Boaz is a wonderful, wonderful type of Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us. Uh, taking a macro view of this, you see Naomi as the Jewish people, and then um, Ruth represents the Gentile church who comes in and actually helps the Jewish people to come to know their Messiah. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful story if you take a step back and look at it this way. I, w- I, lo- I want us to look at it personally. I'm going to look at four stages of relationship in the life of Ruth and how they relate to rela- stages of relationship coming closer to the Lord for us. So the first stage... In chapter 1, Ruth doesn't know Boaz exists. She's in another land. Um, In 2, she's a poor laborer, gleaning in Boaz's fields. She receives his gifts and protection, but sees him only as a benefactor to her, not an intimate. 3, she needs more than this. She yields herself at Boaz's feet, giving herself completely to him and asking him to take her to be his completely. This is a time of desperation. It's a time of great, great risk. And in chapter 4, she's no longer a poor gleaner. For now she has Boaz, 
And everything that belongs to Boaz now belongs to her. But more importantly, she has Boaz. And he is her security at that point. Okay, these easily slide into our own relationship with the Lord. Uh, our first stage, knowing of God. I mean, if you were born in America, you probably have heard of him before. Um, he's, po- he's a popular person, so you hear the name of God, but you might not have, have sought him. Um, he just was a person that was around. Maybe your parents talked about him, or maybe it was something that was happening in a church, and you had no, no um, he wasn't in your milieu. But two, um, there's a time where we say yes to him, and we start benefiting. I mean, the first benefit, obviously, is the burden of sin is lifted. Um, it's no longer held against us. So we're receiving benefits. We're provided for. We have a roof over our head, a family. There's love in our life. Um, but sometimes we can stay here. And he, he is the benefactor. He's the one giving us this stuff. He's, he's giving us forgiveness. And all this, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And many people may live their whole life in chapter 2, um, just being happy with what they have and content. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, in that place, if seeking still begins to happen in your life, there's probably going to come a day where a spark of hunger is ignited to where you can't be here anymore. You have to make some move. I have to get closer to you. I have to have more than just you as a provider for me. And usually this will spark something on our behalf where, on our behalf where we lay everything down and we say, I'm willing to take the risk of appearing foolish, whatever it takes for you to have me completely. And this is progressive. I mean, it's not once that happens, it's all done. And we'll get to another place, and then we'll be unsatisfied with that. Jesus is so attractive that he will continue to attract us. And the more we see of him, the more we'll want to see of him. It continues like this forever. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing because he's that great. And so we continue to come to chapter 3 in these threshing floor moments. And if you haven't come to one of those, ask the Lord, give me a gift of hunger. That will give me that spark to make me want to do that. Because you have to remember that no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, the way it was set up, he had to come to, she had to come to him, because there was someone else that was the redeemer. And that's the way it is with us. We don't come to salvation with him dragging us. He asks us to come. He doesn't. In when we want more, he stands at the door and he knocks and he waits for us to come. It's our move always when we want to give more of ourselves to him and have more of him. In chapter 4, we inherit all that is his as our own, and we become one with him. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you've said yes to Jesus, then there is a longing inside of each of our hearts for oneness, for unity. We don't understand it. It's something that your mind can't ever grasp, but the longing's there. And that's a place that usually people will visit. They don't get to live there very often. I hope that one day I would love to live there. Maybe on the other side we will. But when we get to experience all that he has is ours and all that we have is his. So my question as I close is, where are you? Which one of these four stages do I find myself in today? Maybe you haven't said yes to him ever. Um, If that's something you'd like to do today, I'd love to pray with you over there. Um, But that is always an option for you. And the ball is in your court. Maybe you find yourself in the place where I've been receiving his gifts. I have his salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But I'm coming to the point where I want more. Which brings us to stage three, where that hunger is starting to come. And we have to do something about it. We don't know what it is always. But putting ourselves before him and saying, Lord, whatever it is, let me know what it is and I will give it to you.
And I hope that all of us in the stage are in stage four, but <laughs> I know I'm not, but I'd love to be there and I'd love to visit it more. Um, my second question into you, whatever answer your was to the first question, am I content with this or would I like to move on? There's, again, this is no right or wrong answer. I'm just asking, it's good to know where we are with these kind of things. If you're not, ask the Lord to bring you to the next place. Let's end in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your unbelievable kindness to me, a foreigner in your land. Lord, thank you for not rejecting me outright and allowing me to, for allowing me to glean in your fields, looking out for me in ways that I'll never know or understand. You have been so good to me. But I want more than to be a gleaner in your fields. I want more than your protection and your provision, as wonderful as that is. I want you, as much of you as you will allow me to have. Lord, I want union with you. And Lord, I ask you for the hunger, for the boldness, for the audacity to give myself completely to you and to risk everything for you to redeem me into your own family. Lord, and I pray that we move towards oneness together, the kind of oneness that brings others into our family. Lord, I pray to all of this in Jesus' name.